Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome to BespokeCast. We are thrilled to be talking today to Herb Greenberg of Pacific Square Research. Herb is a partner there uh, and has had a long career uh, in financial journalism. He is a contributor at CNBC and uh, is a regular on uh, a number of the programs there. I'm sure everyone in the financial industry has seen him on the TV at some point or another. He's written for a wide range of different publications uh, as a journalist, and he now practices his craft uh, from Pacific Square, uh, which provides research solutions for clients. So Herb, thanks so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you on. Hey, I'm really glad to be here. And you're joining us from San Diego, is that correct? San Diego, California, absolutely. Sunny San Diego, you you, you must like the sun because you're from Miami originally. Uh, I like the sun, but I don't like the humidity. So San Diego is the perfect compromise. Yeah, humidity is not the way to go. If you're if you're if you're in Miami, you're you're going to have a lot of humidity. I'm I'm in North Carolina, and we get a little bit of it, but it's not quite the same thing as as Southern Florida. Uh, so you grew up down there. Uh, has the city changed much? I mean, I I remember driving through in 2012 when sort of the the post crisis, um, real estate overhang in terms of luxury apartments was still really big. Um, but you know, it's, it's a really nice place. There's, there's lots of people that want to live there for obvious reasons. There's lots of international stuff going on. Um, is it, is it really different from when you grew up or is, or do you Oh have... my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's, 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 and I haven't been there in say five or six years, but it's a Miami proper been down South Florida, but not Miami itself. That Miami, you remember I'm 65 years old. So I was born in Miami, and for the time I was there, which was through 1974, for the most part, I couldn't wait to get out. I mean, Miami was a sleepy, quiet place. There wasn't much going on. You're stuck down there at the bottom of, you know, wherever you were. And uh, I actually appreciate it more now, or appreciate South Florida now than I did then, just because it is, it is, theoretically, it is, not theoretically, it is home. Uh, But... um, you know, when you look back at what it was and how, you know, that you didn't have, forget about the traffic, but places that are so built up were just so rural. And, uh, and, it, and, and to have been able to live there in what I would call, that's a golden time in retrospect, uh, because it was, a, it, it was a special place. And, um, and it, it certainly, there's no resemblance to it today. What are the differences between San Diego and Miami? I mean, they're both places with great weather, you know, humidity, obviously the caveat there. Um, They're both places, I think, that have a reputation for having a little bit more of a relaxed lifestyle than you would find in, you know, New York on the East Coast or San Francisco on the West Coast. Um, Are are there any other big differences that that you see between the two? I think San Diego is less uh, sizzling, so to speak, uh, than Miami is. San Diego is... 
it's an acquired taste for a lot of people, especially those who come from the East Coast, thinking they're coming to this, you know, place where the weather's just great all the time. The weather isn't great all the time. It's there's June gloom, there's May gray, there is, uh, you know, depending on where you live here, uh, there is, uh, you know, there there is humidity, just nothing like the East Coast. There's all sorts of the weather here can 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 vary, but it, relatively speaking, it's fabulous weather. But it doesn't have. I would say even today it doesn't have the the vibe or you know the, the general uh, much you know it doesn't have a, a bit of um, pizzazz that some of the other places have like even going up to LA you know it's just going to have a little bit different vibe uh, a little different energy there's much less energy here I would say uh, part of that's tied to the lifestyle of some people but yet you have you know you have industry here you have you know substantial biotechnology some technology. Um, and, and, and certainly uh, a lot in between, but it's, it's, it, it never became quite what someday I, as a homeowner here, hope it will become, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, while the prices here are crazy in housing, uh, it's still relatively, it's an arbitrage. You could arbitrage it between LA and here where it's much more expensive up in LA and it's much more expensive up in San Francisco. So this is still um, a, 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 a large metro area that, does lag, uh, you know, in various ways. On the other hand, the beauty of a place like this is you can get around. Uh, there is traffic during the week, horrible traffic during the week. But on the weekends, you want to go somewhere, you can just get there. It's gonna, it can take 15, 20 minutes tops. It's like a small, big city at certain times. It still has that feel. And, uh, and I love that. And plus you have the, the water, you know, which isn't far away. Awesome. Yeah. I, I noticed that too, living in a, a smaller Metro in North Carolina where it's still a decent sized city, but the traffic, you know, even a place like Charlotte, which is still a large city, not having the traffic to deal with that you would have in Atlanta or Houston is it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, so you stayed in South Florida for college. You went to the university of Miami, uh, the U, um, and you were a journalism major there, which is a little bit different from a lot of people that are in financial markets. Uh, we always find it really interesting when folks take sort of untraditional paths into um, finance. And even in, I mean, being in the media, you would sort of expect to be a journalism major, but you're now sort of doing your own research. So um, definitely a bit unique. Uh, can you talk about what attracted you to journalism as a major? Was it was it something that you saw as versatile or was it just because you were really excited about going out and working as a reporter? I got into it through what I call the back door. I, I was not necessarily interested in journalism. I wanted to be in those days. I wanted to be a, a, a radio disc jockey. And when I went to, I started out going to Miami Dade. It's called today. I think it's called uh, Miami Dade College, or it was Miami Dade Community College. And I went there, and I wanted to be, you know, get into radio. That was hot back then. And uh, as it turns out. Um, uh, to, there was no major in radio. The major was the closest major was mass communications or journalism, and so I, you know, started taking some journalism classes and worked on the the, the paper, the newspaper for the school, and ended up really liking it. And it was something I hadn't expected, and uh, ended up, uh, you know, just slowly just pursuing it. I, I it was one of those things that once you know I still remember my first story in in the in the community college paper, and so. I took that and then started just to roll with it and then ended up going to the University of Miami on a scholarship from the from the Miami Herald and, you know, just, you know, interned at the Miami Herald and just, you know, just uh, newspapering sort of in those days, newspapering, you know, got in your blood. And uh, and it's it's like any career like that. And it was a special career. And I always felt it was special. So I got into it not wanting to be a journalist. 
but I always like to ask a lot of questions. And so there was that relationship that, that seemed to work. There is something definitely romantic about the idea of like the, the gumshoe reporter. So I'm thinking of like um, Almost Famous, which is about this kid who you know writes a story for Rolling Stone about a fictitious rock group or um you know i read hunter s thompson a fair bit when i was younger and and there's definitely some allure there that that um you know there's great things about the financial industry but it doesn't have that sort of romanticism i feel like mm-hmm. yeah you know the the well newspapering was like that in the day and you know look i started out at the, when i was an intern at the miami herald you know sitting in a little little room listening to police radios and monitoring police radios where you'd have the different municipalities, you know, scan the, the radio would scan all the municipalities and the highway patrol. And, you know, you're basically listening in, in addition to calling the police departments, you're basically listening to hear if something was different, because if they're in a chase or something, you could hear that. Right. And so you listen for that and then you call the police department to find out what's going on. Uh, remember, this is so pre-internet. This is so pre, <laughs> this is pre free cable TV almost. It's, it's just, it's way back at a different point in time. And also, you know, writing obituaries, those are how, you, that's how you started in the day. I was a copy, I started out as a copy boy, basically, the Miami News, which meant in those days, uh, you know, filling, literally filling glue pots. What's a glue pot? Well, before they used to write on, <laughs> before there was a computer, there was a typewriter. And when you wrote stories, you, you know, instead of cutting and pasting electronically, you did it manually and you'd cut out a piece of, of copy and you'd paste it with rubber cement, you'd paste it you know, where you wanted it to go. It was just such a mess. But that's what I did. I used to car, I used to change ribbons and teletype machines. I mean, that's, that was the ultimate first job. And it was a great first job, too. And uh, while I was going to school at, at, in community college, and then interning when I was at the Miami Herald, when I was at the University of Miami, when I when it was at the Miami Herald first semester. So uh, it was, uh, it was a very different time. But, you know, getting into, uh, you know, it's changed so much today that, that could take hours to discuss. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's something we hear about from a lot of our guests who got into the industry at, at earlier times is how much the, the technology and the, the way people go about their day has changed. Um, so yeah. you start uh, working at the Miami Herald while you're still in, in journalism school, but quite early on, you did fall into some financial journalism stuff, correct? Well, the financial journalism was, again, it was it was almost like supply and demand. My first job out of school in 1974 was at the Boca, what was then called the Boca Raton News. It was the smallest newspaper owned by what but owned by what then was Knight Ritter Newspapers, which owned the Miami Herald. And and it, it which has since been merged into McClatchy and has you know, gone in a whole other direction with the industry. But I think the uh, but but what I did is I, I went to this paper. They had a business section once a week. It was rotated around the newsroom. Nobody wanted to do it. Everybody back then, remember, this was around Watergate, post-Watergate. People wanted to do political reporting. They wanted to cover, you know, the, the local government and stuff like that. And so when it came to me, and I, you know, I was a new reporter there, and they, you know, it was my turn to do the business, I, I kind of liked it. I went out and interviewed, you know, some managers from a from the public's, you know, supermarket chain. And I wrote a piece, and it was it was it was a good piece. And I I realized no one else wanted to do this, so I sort of raised my hand and said, "I'll do this." And so I started interviewing all the executives who had come down to the Boca Raton Resort and Club, and and that and 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 former executives who had lived there in the day. You know, it was a much smaller community, Boca Raton, but it was a wealthy community. Part of it was a wealthy community, so there were a lot of retirees, retired people who'd done really great things. So I started doing profiles on those people. So it sort of got me into financial journalism. Uh, and 
you know, after a year or so, I was kind of bored and moved up to a trade publication where I covered circuses, car, circuses, carnivals, auditoriums, arenas. That was a publication called Amusement Business, and it was owned by Billboard, Billboard magazine. You know, Billboard is best known for the music industry, but Billboard started originally back in the day of vaudeville and all that kind of stuff as the outdoor amusement industry because it really started it started covering you know what then was circuses fairs carnivals and things like that 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 was entertainment back then and then it morphed into you know billboard morphed into what it became an amusement business was a small now shut down part of that organization covering a very narrow niche of a part of of, of the world economy that nobody cares about or cared about, but was very interesting for a year to follow. And then I went and moved up to St. Paul, Minnesota, where I really became a business journalist. And that's where uh, I was hired as a business journalist. I didn't know what I was doing, but in those days, St. Paul and Minneapolis were like a mini Chicago. And you could go in there and you start, you know, you just hit the ground during, you know, in business journalism, unless you come with a financial background, which ne isn't necessarily a good thing, you just go in cold and you start asking a lot of questions. And if you're inquisitive, if you were inquisitive in those days, you could, you know, really make you could start, you know, uh, figuring things out. And, you you yeah. said something really interesting there. You said that having a financial background to be a business journalist isn't necessarily necessarily a good thing. I definitely agree with that. I'm curious what your reasoning for that is. Well, because you're not coming in acting like you know everything. Right. You have to come in cold and ask questions and you have to learn. And the, and the embarrassing part is you go through a period where you really are bluffing and you really are making it up as you go along, as I like to say, which everyone does in every field, no matter what they're doing. Because even if you had a financial background, you know, you might understand it. Let's say you had an economics background. You'd understand economics or you had an MBA. You'd understand business from a certain perspective, but it wouldn't necessarily give you the level of inquisitiveness to ask the stupid or the the, 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 the question others may not want to ask, because maybe you know so much, you don't want to go down to the next level where you'll ask why. And so I find, you know, and again, that was then. I think today it, it, there, there are business journalism programs out there, which I think would be very helpful and are probably ne almost necessary for certain levels of financial reporting. Uh, but back then there was nothing. You know, I went to in 79, I went to a, a business uh, an economics fellowship at the University of Missouri. But that was the closest thing to economic training that I had. But the most of it you learn just through the back door. And I think it's really I think I could see where someone would listen to this and say this guy. I mean, I could I could say this about myself. I how can you listen to somebody who doesn't have the training? And I, what I can say is after <laughs> after 20 years of doing it, 30 years of doing it, 40 years of doing it. You've seen it all, you've learned it all, you understand it all, and you may not be able to do uh, an analysis that some guy who has a CFA can do, but you certainly understand perhaps even differently because you think critically, you think conceptually uh, how things really should be or might be. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I think yeah. that's a general a general thing too. I, you know, I see it a lot in economics, which is sort of more where I come at things. I'm more of a macro top-down kind of guy. and when you 
have people that come out of an undergrad economics degree, if they take as rote some of the sort of um, assumptions of the of the discipline that you know this is how it works in the real world as well as how it works in you know a given model that's supposed to be sort of illustrative as opposed to all encompassing, you get into a lot of trouble really quickly, right? And you can see people kind of go like, wait, this isn't the world isn't behaving how it's supposed to behave, and it's definitely true as well, you know at the micro level at you know how businesses work um just asking why you know why is something that way i don't that doesn't make intuitive sense um can open up a lot of doors yeah i think that i think that it is very helpful to uh to not know the answers and i think the people who know who think they know the answers uh you know they can be very bright and maybe they and they can be excellent you know journalists or or they can be excellent at what they do but as a, as a as a non as someone with a non financial background, um, I like to think I've proven that you can come from any 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 from various backgrounds. And if you have the drive, in my case, I was just very turned on by anything dealing with business, anything dealing with people who created things. I loved it. I mean, I didn't start out as a critical journalist. I started out as a very much a I call thumbsucker journalist, writing thumbsuckers is what we call them. They were profiles. They were they were easy stories. And uh, but that was actually an important part of the process. And then to finally be bamboozled by I'll never forget not in the 1970s at Boca Raton News. I was bamboozled by a cop. I wrote a profile on a cop, an ex cop who had started a business with white powder that was going to it was like it was like baking powder that could be used to dry out your refrigerator and stuff. So I wrote this glowing piece on the guy. Turns out in these big barrels of white dust. He was smuggling weapons. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and so, you know, you learn early on when you're doing all this stuff, you know, you start becoming just by nature of doing it where you get, you know, where, where you get misled. And that, you know, creates even a, 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 a makes you far more cynical, more skeptical as you go along in the process. And as, it, and, and when it comes to business journalism, you know, you, I mean, it's, you know, it's so easy to be, to allow yourself to be misled, um, and, and and because you you're almost are you going to be part of the club or you're going to be questioning the club, and that's sometimes a very you know you know it's a line some journalists walk well and not so well, um, and and tech journal I would argue the tech journalists um, succumb to being so taken by the technology they don't see what's going on at the company, and that's always been one of the advantages of. Uh, of, of the, the journalist who isn't a tech journalist who's writing about technology companies because you can you come in and you say, well, wait a minute. This is what they're telling you isn't real. They're, they're, they're trying to get their stock up with what we used to call vaporware, meaning that they were just creating a uh, concept that wasn't potentially ever commercial. They could never commercialize. Um, so, you know, you, over, along the way, you just, you know, it's one of those you've sort of seen it all. And just when you, by the way, just when you think you've seen it all, the one thing you learn doing in the doing this, and I don't, I think everyone would agree that it's done as long as I have, just when you think you've seen it all, something new comes along and you just can't believe what so you're seeing. Was there an experience like that? I mean, you mentioned the, uh, in Boca Raton, but um, in Minneapolis as well, like was, was there sort of a definitive period in your career where you went from writing those sort of thumb suckers to your rep more towards your reputation today where, you know, you're sort of a guy that looks for red flags, looks for the story from a critical angle that the market may be missing, you know, 
sometimes that's right, sometimes that's wrong, like with anything, but your general bias is more towards finding stuff that other folks are missing to the downside, essentially. Um, I mean, uh, it, was, was that... It was an evolution. It was an evolution. You, you evolved to that space because I don't think you can master it when you're young. I think you think you can, but I think perspective gives you the ability to really do it with, uh, with authority. Um, so I think in the only thing in St. Paul that I did, St. Paul, I was covering companies, railroads, the railroads that existed. I was covering the airlines. I was covering beats there. And that was a great place for three plus years to cover beats, things that don't, some of these companies don't even exist because they've all been merged away. But it, you got to cover those so many industries. And so St. Paul, I really didn't do much other than once get into questioning usury rates that you know, some of the credit cards were charging back then. Uh, but then I think it was really in Chicago when I went to work for Crane Chicago Business. Um, it was a, it was it was probably the turning point of my career because this was a business publication run by uh, the then managing editor Greg David was a very tough guy, and uh, he really I always call it the boot camp of my career. Uh, I covered a bunch of industries there, went to almost every annual meeting of any company that was on my beat, even if there were only five people or two people at those meetings, no matter where they were in the Chicago area. And that the Crane Chicago business, and we're talking 1980 now, had an edge. It was known as an edgy place. And this was, it was trying almost to follow what Business Week used to be back then, where there, where there was an edge. We used to talk about forward spin. You weren't just reporting the news, but because you were weekly, you were, you were, you were interpreting it and moving it forward. And that's what we tried to do to make ourselves different. And that's what Cranes was all about in, back in the day. And then I went to the Chicago Tribune. And that's where, I, again, I, as I started to cover companies, I became a little more, you know, edgy. But it wasn't until, and I, then I took a, I, you know, I, I, you know, you went through a lot of this. Went to New York as a financial correspondent for the for the Chicago Tribune, but then went to an arbitrage firm for a year right before the market crashed. And when the market crashed, I was working there and realized there were people who were a lot more experienced than I was who were going to be, you know, who were on the street, literally losing their jobs. This is sorry. This is the crash of eighty-seven, man. I was mm -hmm. I was working for this firm for this arbitrage firm, and I was you know it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the right fit for me, but I was there for a year, and the the San Francisco Chronicle came calling and asked me if I was would be interested in doing a uh, column, and I went there. There was already an existing column, and I came in and decided. And my my pitch was I would make this very proprietary, and this is before the internet, before CNBC. This is in 1987, and it was a very special time to do this before the internet, before CNBC, through the creation of CNBC, and then through the creation of the internet, and to watch the change. So I came in and created what what was when I say created, I took over a column, and and then um, it was a six day a week column, and uh, I. My approach was to try to just be edgy. In the early days, edgy men also take over rumors, things like that. And I was every, because you had to come out every day with something. But I slowly started, back then, the short sellers started to be known. And I wanted, to, there was a, there were a famous group of short sellers in San Francisco. I wanted to know them because I wanted to know, I like this concept of there were people out there betting against, against the herd and they were trying to root out quote unquote evil, right? They're trying to find what was wrong. And so I wanted to know these people. And so I started, I, I introduced myself. They became some sources for some interesting stories. 
early on in the process, uh, Mark Cahotis, who I know you have uh, you've interviewed. Uh, yeah, we ha- we had him on very recently. Mark's Mark's Mark, a fascinating Mark, guy. Mark 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 rang me up, said that you know somebody gave him my name. He was you know, whatever. He introduced himself. You know, met him. Started meeting a bunch of different people, and I started writing much more um, edgy, more questionable uh, stories in San, in San Francisco. So from from 1980, 80, I don't know, 1980, excuse me, 1987, uh, it's actually 1988 to 1998 for 10 years through that transition of all the things that was going on with social, with, with the internet and How do you think about the challenge of writing every day? Because, uh, you know, in, in our work, I write between 1,500 and 3,000 words a day. And there are some days when I come in and I sit down and there's just nothing to talk about. You kind of have to, you know, you don't make stuff up. That's not the right way to describe it. But finding something interesting to say when you're just looking at the market or looking at economic data and there's just nothing interesting happening, that's challenging. And how do you get, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, how did I deal with that? And I did it. For yeah, sorry, I did. It's, it's, you dealt with it by always having something in your hip pocket. Now, remember, writing for a newspaper is even different than writing for a website. Because I went through, I was early, I was in the early transition to online journalism uh, back when I went to the street in 98, uh, thestreet.com. But, but, but when you're writing a newspaper, especially back in the earlier days, you didn't have much competition. So you could really take certain things. I always made sure that I had something because it's two or three o'clock in the afternoon. I've been struggling. I've been working on something. It didn't gel the way I expected it to. So I'd have to punt and what I, and, and use one of those things that's gathering dust on my, on my gathering dust on my desk, something that I've been holding for a day, just like this, something from a newsletter, just something, some, you know, some interview I had done earlier with a money manager about what stocks does he like or doesn't like, or she doesn't like he or she. And so there were always, I always made sure I had something. And I realized every day wasn't going to be perfect. No one was going to read everything every day. The whole thing was a package. It was a package deal. I figured people were glancing at it. But the most interesting thing I think I realized is that if I had been writing those kind of columns uh, today, I don't think I would have been able to do it. Because I think what would have happened with the internet and with people looking for eyeballs, I think there would have been uh, I think the kind of things I was writing that were impactful, by the way, but they were about companies some people might not have cared about, so they wouldn't have gotten the clicks. And I think some of these led to investigations. But there were, I think today there probably are a lot of stories that should be written that aren't be written, being written just because of the nature of the way the news media and, and, and social media and all media has evolved because they're not going to get the eyeballs. Yeah, that's something that we talked about with Mark um, in our recent interview with him is, you know, his attitude is that he's got to be a, a, you know, bulldog about it and just, you know, never let go of stuff because, you know, and, and we didn't really talk about the angle you just described, but definitely true that some stuff gets attention and other stuff doesn't, regardless of its of its objective importance, you know, well, whatever you that objective. Well, you can't do that. Here's the interesting thing. You couldn't do that. I'd get pressure when I'd write about some companies. People would say, enough already with this one company that you're writing about every other day. And in a news, in a news organization, there are limitations. And even if you want to become a bulldog, unless it's a really big story, 
even back then, it was hard to keep, you know, day after day, keeping, I used to say the saga continues, the saga continues, and hopefully some people caught the humor in whatever I was doing. Today, though, the things have changed because you, whether it's people like Mark or other people with blogs, they're all out there. They're all out there talking their book. They're all out there publicly. These are people who used to be, would be sources for people like me. They're all, they're all with their own brands doing their own thing. And that's changed the space dramatically. And there are, there are, they're working on the pieces that might not ever get the big clicks, that would never get the big clicks. There would be, some of the names some of these people do would, even in our research business, wouldn't cut it because they're too small, you know, for our type of business. So, and, and I think that's very interesting because I think there's, there are a group of companies that are not getting covered, that are not, that are, that can fall through the cracks, that can get away with things they shouldn't be getting away with, but they're, they're, the news organizations can't cover them. The research firms can't afford to cover them for the most part because the market doesn't exist. So they're, they're covered quietly or occasionally by a blogger. Do you find that same sort of dichotomy in terms of attention? Do you think that applies as well when you're on TV? So, you know, they may have you on to talk about, I don't, I, don't, I can't remember the last time I saw a topic you were talking about, but you know, Tesla or I don't know, something like that, some huge name stock, but something that may be really egregious. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's got a market cap of a billion dollars where no one's going to care. And it's this complex business and, and it's not going to get people's attention like an electric car does. Um, is that something you had to sort of learn to balance when you first started moving into, yeah. into television as well? I mean, and I, the other thing I would say, just just you know, purely as a function of the medium. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily because CNBC's got an agenda or anything like that. It's, it's like with the internet, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's a function of how the medium works and one that people just have to maneuver around, I think. I think that, look, TV is different than print or online or publication, however you want to view it. TV is different. And when, you, when, when I went to TV full time, I was there for three years, it's different than being a contributor. When you go there and you you have your own sort of agenda, in my case, trying to keep doing what I was known for and what I was doing, you quickly learn that some of these are are not what I call TV stories. They're great. They're great. They should be vetted. They should be out there. You want stories to be told, but they're not TV stories. They're names that that are gonna that are that if you write about, if I went on television talking about it, people would probably possibly switch channels. Eyeballs would glaze over. And so some of that wouldn't resonate unless you could find a really good hook. And, and, and the only way those things resonate is today is if, you know, it's like, for example, when Carson Block and Muddy Waters were doing some of these names no one would care about, because they were having impact on stock, suddenly they were, you know, Carson was wanted on television because he was having great impact. So that's the exception to the rule when it comes from outside the network. Uh, but that said, when I was inside the network, you know, there were the little Chinese stock frauds and I was trying to find a way to do some stuff on these stock frauds. But the hard part is you're talking about companies that are 100, 300 million dollar market cap. I mean, nobody cares. You, you can't get a network interested in something like that. So I was I, I was talking to a friend and we were, I was talking, I was bemoaning the fact that there was all this stuff going on with these Chinese companies. And no one can, you know, you couldn't really talk about it. And, and, and my friend said something interesting. He said, you know, if you look at these companies in the aggregate, they have a market cap of billions of dollars, whatever the number was, it was billions. And I, that was it. Boom. That was the hook. And I was able to go on and on CNBC and start saying, hey, in and of themselves, 
These names may not be important, but we're talking about a growing. There were Chinese reverse mergers. Most of them were uh, Chinese companies trading in the U.S. via a reverse merger. I went on and I said, you know, I went on and did a report that said this is a big deal. These companies have come in under the radar, but now they are billions in, in market value. They represent billions in market value. And that became a really big story. And, you know, but I had to have couched it that way, not each individual company that would have made eyeballs glaze over. Do you find it challenging um, when you're looking at these tiny companies? There's, you know, there's hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of listed stocks around the world that that could, um, you know, at least get a cursory look for a red flag, something like that. Um, it'd be really helpful to sort of hear about your process for, you know, what first attracts you to names and then how you, how you think about the amount of time you want to dedicate to, okay, there's something going on here, you know, but I can't figure it out unless I spend X number of hours on it. Is it worth spending that X hours on it? Um, is that going to be, you know, something that viewers or that people that, um, purchase your research or whoever finds valuable and how, how do I think about that sort of trade off? It takes as much to research a $100 million market cap company as it does a billion dollar, a 50 billion, a hundred billion. They all take a lot of time. And so you really have to decide how compelling the story is. If it's, a, if it's journalism, you have to decide if it's a company that has consumer appeal, people know about it, then it's got a newsworthy uh, angle to it. If it's just another you know, small industrial company that no one really cares about, that, that's a tough call. And people say, hey, you're a journalist. You, you should be interested in this. And you want to say, yeah, well, you know, I, I have my priorities. And some people don't understand that. They think that, you know, and, and unfortunately, there are people who get away with fraud or other sorts of aggressive behavior that should be, that should be nailed. But that doesn't necessarily happen. In our business, our process is far more... Um, focused on, uh, you know, we, we have limits of, you know, we don't do a company's under a billion dollars. We like to have average daily volume of over $15 million in the very least. You know, we have to think that way in terms of just what our end market's going to be interested in, because our end market includes, a, a, you know, a bunch of subscribers uh, that are big funds that would never touch a, a company that didn't trade enough. You know, you have to think about this too, which I never thought about as a journalist. So, right. you, so it's a very different, uh, you're doing something very differently with a research firm than you're doing as journalism, uh, even though the journalism angle, I think, gives me an edge in terms of thinking about what people are interested in and how I want to present something and, you know, what kind of uh, companies we're interested in. Uh, and, and so you have, to, you have to weigh all that off. But bang for the buck is something you have to think about in terms of where, where and how you're going to spend your time. When you first look at a company, uh, when you the the first thing you're going to do to um, be analytical about looking at a firm, what do you do? Are you reading annual reports? Are you reading 8Ks? Are you Googling them? What what what's the sort of qualitative approach you're going to take to getting a first look at a company? Well, the, the simple answer is yes, and the, but the, but it, there's no one size fits all on any way you do anything. So. Um, you know, our ideas come from a variety of sources. Our ideas come from my partner's screening. Uh, we have an analyst, uh, Linda McDonough. She does screening of her, uh, a different way. She's a CFA as opposed to a CPA, which my business partner, Don Vickery. Don Vickery is one of the great forensic accountants out there. Uh, he used to, he co-founded Grading Analytics. 
He's a certified fraud examiner. He's a PhD in accounting. I mean, he's a former accounting professor. He has a whole different way of looking at things. People ask for him to see his models, and he says, yeah, but it's a forensic model. It's very different than what they're used to seeing. So what happens is it depends on what the story is. Typically, we both look at them. We all come at it differently. So Don will always be, if Don is doing the work or Linda's doing the work, they always dive into the numbers directly into the numbers. That's how they first look at it. I'm not the numbers guy. And I'm the first guy to stand up and say, I'm not the numbers guy. I'm the conceptual guy. I'm the story guy. I'm the field research guy. And I'm the writer. And when I write, I have to be able to tell this story even to our group of subscribers. And what happens typically is, um, is when Don's going through the numbers, if I know what I'm looking for, I start, I call it cozying up to a situation. I'll cozy up to, it could take me a long time to cozy up to, to really understand what the company is all about. And one of the first things I do on almost any company, I don't always do it first because again, everything's different, is go to the proxy. And I go to the proxy and I go and I try to look at the bonus structure. I want to see how people are bonused because that is the motive. You're always looking for the motive. If you think something aggressive is going on, you want to see if, the, if it does show up with a motive. And that motive would be um, the bonus structure. Is it a simple bonus structure based on EPS or adjusted EPS or revenue or something that's simple for a company to, to, to meet and beat or forces them to be aggressive? So that's one thing I like to do. It doesn't always bear fruit, but every now and then it shows a motive. And then um, what we all do is then then it becomes normal research. Yes, it's Googling. You know, we did our Alibaba work. I'd say we know more about Alibaba than any company, anyone on the planet. And, you know, a lot of the work that, that we did, that Don did especially, was, you know, finding out companies they invested in that were never disclosed. A lot of that was through straight Googling, you know, lots of Googling and, and a lot of reverse Googling and a lot of reverse work. And what we both we all do, because what will happen is in a process like ours, you know, we go through, you know, you go through and everybody does this, but we all do it differently because we all see the same thing differently, right? You, you may look at a, at a transcript of a conference call and see something very different than I do. I get excited about things. So if I, my partners, my, you know, my business, my business partner, Don, he's very, he's very methodical. He's not the guy who's going to get totally excited because he's got, you know, you know, the left brain going on. I got the right brain going on. So we both, we look at things very differently. And so when we go through the process, and that includes the early process and the writing process, as we're going back and double checking and triple checking and, you know, trying to fill in holes, you know, you're scraping through every transcript known to mankind. You're scraping through, um, uh, you know, trying to find trends. And you can't just do it once. You have to go back. I, I remember I was working on Malincrot, and it took, I went back three years worth of of investor call, investor conferences and earnings call transcripts to just, I, I kept going back over and over, constantly searching certain words to try to find a change in the company's um, uh, mood or attitude toward a drug they, they acquired uh, from QuestCore called Akthar. And I was trying to see if there was a change in, in, in what they were telling the street. And it was ever so slight but it was there and I was able to nail it. And it was, but it, it took so long, just over and over. And then when you're in the writing process, the writing process is where you, you know, I consider that part of the discovery process because now you're writing, now you're really realizing what pieces of the puzzle you don't have. 
And so that adds more dimensions, but we're using everything. We're using any document, uh, including correspondences with the SEC, you know, anything we can find that will tell us, you know, you know, tell us what we're either prove or disprove what our thesis is. How many words a day do you think you read? I read? Because yeah. if you're reading all, no these, all these uh, transcripts I, and... Because, well, you're, you're, not, you're not sitting there with a... Because I read all sorts of stuff. You're not sitting there... Like, I, I, don't print a lot, I don't print a lot of stuff out. So we have... You know, you have a lot of search tools. So we use, an, we use a service called Sentio, which is a pretty... There, there are a few services like this out there, and it helps us do universal searches. So I like, you know, you can search a word. And so you search... You go through full calls... So I don't have any idea. But then I go and I start searching terms and I search words and I search variations of words. And these searches, these services help you. But you can't even rely exclusively on these because some transcripts might be on one service, but they're not on another service. So then you have to go back and you have to find the missing documents. Um, I, have, I don't know. I, I go through it uh, some days when I'm when I'm deep in project mode. Uh, I have no idea. All I know is I'm re and I'm reading a lot of the same stuff over and over again because I just either don't believe it, don't see it. We all, the three of us, challenge each other because we may interpret things a little differently. You know, I'll double check. I can't double check Don's numbers work, but I will double check his thoughts when he sends me his notes or Linda's stuff. I'm we're all, you know, there's a process here of, you know, trying to make sure we're getting it right. And it's so it's a huge process that we go through when we're really in an in-depth mode and it can take so long because the process can take a month. Um, but, it, but, you know, you know, often it can take a full month, sometimes longer, sometimes less. But the writing process, you know, I'm I'm the, I'm where things slow down often because in the end, that's the hard that's that's a hard part because you got you have to write it. Your my colleagues have to go through, see what I've written. They, we have to make changes. We have to then sometimes we have to ship it off to our libel lawyer. There's just a lot of different ways of doing it. But so the process changes, I think. Some people say they have specific process. We have our processes in general, but they change by company. And you, I don't think you can look at everything the same way. And I think so, one of the things I think I've noticed is a lot of younger analysts, they look at things by plugging numbers into, into models. And I don't think they conceptually think through. I sometimes wonder, why don't these analysts see what I see on some company? What, why don't they see this? And what they're doing is they're plugging it in. They're plugging in the numbers. They're plugging in the numbers. That's what they were taught in business school. Plugging in the do, numbers. Do you think that's a failure of education? I mean, I, I'm just I'm just thinking about your the team you've just described. You've got three different people with three very different approaches mm -hmm. to how the world works, how to interpret the world. Um, that's something that is never going to be possible to do as a single person. Um, but there's definitely different approaches you can take in how you educate yourself, how you you know interpret new information that that moves more in that direction. So do you think the the impulse to sort of have a you know square hole and just try a plug round pegs into it, or I may have that metaphor backwards, but I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. Do you think that is is a failure of education or do you, because it, it's hard to believe that all these analysts who are generally really smart people are, you know, just dumb, right? I don't think that's the case at all. No, there are a lot of, let me just tell you something. No, there are a lot of, every, there are a lot of smart people out there and all smart people get it wrong. Let's start with that. Absolutely. I think the difference though is, is I think someone with a pure left brain is really going to, isn't going to necessarily have the creative side uh, to, 
to to also think of it in this more this 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 sort of broader way. And I think that there is it's when you can team with everybody and hash it out. So my partner is the first to tell me that he doesn't agree with me right away, and I'm the first to tell him that I think this idea he's going after isn't the right idea for our for our for our client base. And or to tell Linda where she may have been involved, where she was an assistant portfolio of a short fund, and it might be a position she would have put on at the fund, but it's not one that's going to be right for us to spend weeks working on just because it's not going to have a pop that our client, our subscribers are looking for. So you have to be willing to basically always uh, back away and uh, and 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 respect each other, which we which we have a good time doing. And, you know, we, we've even come down just reason. We're always learning, right? We're always changing. You're always evolving. You have to. We're just even now we've been in business two and a half years and we're, you know, let's not do, I don't want to do any more of X, Y, Z type of companies. I'm just sick. of them. I don't think anyone cares about them. You spend a month working on it and then you, 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 you your hunches, your subscribers, you know, it doesn't resonate. There's nothing worse than that is a name that doesn't resonate or you suspect doesn't resonate. No one's asking you questions about it. That, my friend, is disheartening. And even though I write for just a small number of people now, it's still the same. I never think about how many I write for. It's you want people to read it and get something out of it. And you know that with, you know, our limited number of subscribers, they're all not going to read it, but you want to have a good hit rate. You know, you want people to ask questions and interact with you on that. Have you seen a shift even in the two and a half years since you switched over to the uh, research side full time? Have you seen a shift in the uh, need for third-party ideas um, with the ongoing sort of shift in priorities from large banks um, in Europe. Um, MFID two is going to disaggregate research from commissions, mm -hmm. um, so that's going to be a challenge for the traditional sell-side model. Um, is that have you seen that organically taking place in the United States? We're not going to have the same regulatory impetus, but but. Um, there does seem to be much more cost consciousness from Wall Street on stuff that traditionally banks would just provide for clients. I, I that's a that's a that's a that's a terrific question, and I think that and a perceptive question, and I think that anyone in the research business today telling you that it's like it was ten years ago would be is is, is just lying. It, this is a the end market is struggling. Uh, the end market is trying to figure it out. The end market, some end market. People tell you they don't get anything out of third-party research. They'd rather do it all in-house. Other people say they're looking for ideas and they they could help. They they like the idea generation that a third party uh, brings in. Um, but budgets have been crushed. Uh, uh, I can tell you when budgets are crushed, that affects firms like ours. Uh, people, uh, the budgets have shifted to data instead of our type of research. That's not that's very difficult. I talk to people who've been in this business for a lot longer than I have. And they tell the same story that it's never been this difficult. So it's it's an interesting time, though, because I have this theory and the theory is that everybody is spending so much to become quantitative in their approach that in a sense, that's going to burn out at some point. So everybody leapfrogs everybody else getting the edge. But at some point, because there are so many smart quants out there, they're all going to have the edge. And at some point that ret returns you to stock picking, in our case, mostly on the on on the short side. But it's 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 a challenging business, and I think that uh, you, we always tell people we're looking for fit. So we're looking for the right person who understands what the the concept of what we do is, um, and it's not for everybody. I'll tell you that much. Do you have any 
ideas you're currently working on that, that you'd be willing to talk about, a, a company you're really excited about, or, or maybe one that you um, have recently uh, done a bunch of work on um, that's a little bit um, out of date, just to sort of get a closer idea for, for how, you, how you think about it and the sort of process you went through to get to your end product? You know, I don't really, I, I don't, um, the current names are a little more difficult, but there's a name that's a form because we don't, we try not to talk about those publicly for the most part. One name we spent a lot of time on from the early days, uh, and the name originally came from a third partner we had, and then we did additional work and went on and we parted ways, but we ended up, it was a great name, and that's um, Stericycle. And this is a name that didn't resonate. Nobody could have given a hoot about this name because I think it had steamrolled short sellers for years and years and years. Uh, uh, and this is a company that picks up, me- that traditionally, it from picks up medical waste from doctor's offices, needles and all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, takes it away and sterilizes it, gets rid of it, you know, whatever, whatever they do, burn it, burns it. And this was a great story. The story we had and, and the way we went about getting it was, it was really about, um, the big part of the story was that these guys were raising prices on these doctor's offices and they're only charging $100, $150 a month to a doctor's office or something like that. But as they, the rates were being, because the price was so low, they were raising these rates. And as they raised rates, doctor's offices didn't know. And then through a series of, of events, doctor's offices started to figure it out. And I can tell you, I went to the Better Business it was, a, it was one of those deals where I went to the Better Business Bureau website and went through every, there, at that point, uh, two years ago, there were maybe 300 complaints from these doctor's offices, which was the most profitable part of their business. And I was able to tell in doing that, that by going through each one, the complaints were so similar. They were so mad. Long-time customers realizing that their prices had been increased without them ever knowing it. I thought this was really interesting. So I mentioned it to a guy I know who knows this space implicitly, inside out and backwards, better than anyone. And he said, ah, the Better Business Bureau. He says, that doesn't mean anything. They have 60,000 customers. You're talking about 300. But I, when we went out with our first report, we wrote that this is a risk that Wall Street wasn't considering. And darned if this didn't become the part of the story that that literally caused a huge reset in the stock still i believe even though we don't cover it anymore continue probably will continue to have it problems and it's one of those great stories i tried to get a reporter to interested just because it's if i was a reporter i would have wanted to write this story it was sort of this stealth issue in the medical industry of rising medical costs that no one was paying attention to that the doctors were the guys getting squeezed and part of it was this company that was stealth doing a stealth like raising prices but anyway so that was a story we did a lot of work on it showed itself it showed itself both in the financial side which is what we like and on the field work side and the other thing is it's a roll-up and so when you're looking at roll-ups you have to be careful because they can roll up forever that we hit it at the right time and Don could see in the numbers that they were starting to struggle and they couldn't do more acquisitions and they'd sort of just hit it. It's, it's, it's going to be a case study one day. It's a really, it's, it's, it's a good, and it still may be a good one going forward. There's a good bull bear tug of war going on there, but we just needed to move on and in names. So really the issue with this company was not that they were raising prices. It was that they were raising prices and their customers didn't know and they were sneaking it by them. And that created... Yes, that was it. And that cre- and then when it came out, it came out through a variety of lawsuits and some whistleblower stuff that, again, no one was paying attention to. It's really... It was... Let me tell you something. The best part of this story, and as I look back on it retrospectively, that only did I realize... The company was outed originally by the state of New York where they paid a fine of $2 million for 
gouging for raising prices uh, for a state-run, you know, uh, ambulance squads, all sorts of stuff in the state of New York. $2 million is a slap on the wrist. That $2 million fine and that case led to uh, enough, led to, a, led to a whistleblower lawsuit, led to class action lawsuit, created great visibility within the medical industry of what was going on and, and caused people to really uh, look at their, some people to look at their medical bills. But what I did when I was doing research, one thing I did is I called all my doctors and I just said, hey, who does your, who does your, your, your pickups of your needles and things like that? And a few of them said, oh, Stericycle. I said, hey, have you checked your bills lately? And I had one or two go, one of them going, no, why? He said, but a friend of mine in the East Coast is really pissed at them. So that he goes, he checks his bill and he goes, can't believe it. My prices increased. He was so livid that what had happened to him, he didn't realize it. I called my an old dentist's office. A dentist said, oh, man, we had an accountant in here looking at our books. And the accountant said, you know, what's ha- how? why is your stericycle charges going up so much? And so you could call. This was a great one because you could call your own doctors and do the research as part of it, you know. And so those are those are that's you know, that was just triple confirmation of what was really going on. And the company, meanwhile, on its conference calls, when they were asked how much they raised prices, were saying they were just rising them in, in line with inflation, which was we don't believe was the truth. So, um, plus the company never would talk to us, which we we go out and try to talk to all companies, and they 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 dodged us, which was another red flag. It says something really interesting too about our healthcare system that those price raises raises could be so impactful to these businesses but they don't even know what's going on like like they don't know you it. know if you're a manufacturer right and you're mm-hmm. you're building furniture and wood prices go up 50% you're paying attention right like like you you're going to see that but with the medical industry just the way the whole thing is set up there are so many costs like that, so much complexity that there's there's much more room for that kind of thing to go on. It, it's kind of unique in that respect. Especially if it's auto pay. Remember, doctors' offices are moms and pop businesses. There's still many of them are moms and pop, you know, very small businesses. Doctors are not great business people. They pay something like this with a credit card. It's just an automatic charge. They don't even think about it. Uh, and and you know, the office manager could change. Lots of things happen. So that's the that was a great I thought that was a great story the greatest story one of the great stories that was never told. Well that's very interesting. I we I understand you have to run to uh, another call so we'll close up with our trading rich trading cheap segment. Um would be great to get your thoughts on a couple different things. So uh all of your business revolves around single stock uh picking usually to the downside but um that is something that you had mentioned earlier, a lot of places are getting away from, whether it's towards more quantitative strategies, indexing is huge. Uh, do you think stock picking as a practice and as a way of investing is trading rich or trading cheap? I think it's trading cheap. I think ultimately, ultimately it's going to be, it will always, it will always be, uh, there will always be someone who knows how to do it and do it right and have it as part of their strategy. Uh, and, and ultimately it is, it, it, it is what will def- differentiate and does differentiate, I think, really great investors from the crowd. And even in these, you know, really large funds, I see a lot of, you know, you see a lot of crowd activity and, uh, people still want to invest alongside their friends. They still want to, you know, get comfort in numbers. But when I look at our subs subscribers and I look at some of them are really smart and they're willing to be out there on the leading edge, they're the ones they're willing to be patient. Those who really can be patient, I, I think still can, uh, can do very well. And 
So that's 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 my view on it. I think ultimately, I, I once asked, I have to tell you, I once asked Bob Olsen this years ago when it looked like he was just an old, tired old, you know, stock picker. And he said, Herb, he said, stock picking's never going out of vogue. It'll come and go in various markets, but there's still a place for stock pickers. And uh, I am talking my book, but I also believe it. We both appear in the financial media fairly regularly, um, you know, the, the traditional business television space. Um, you wrote a column for 10 years for the San Francisco Chronicle. You came up through very traditional business media. At the same time, uh, both yourself um, and myself and Bespoke um, Pacific Square Research, it's, it's all part of an independent research um, space that has grown a lot and gotten a lot more diverse in the last few years. Um, so do you think that competition from uh, independent research and and from folks like um, our, our friend Mark Cajodes, um or you know other people who are just willing to share their process um, on the internet for free. Uh, do you think that business media is going to be able to sustain to to withstand that sort of competition, or do you think it's ultimately additive and will be helpful in the longer run? So, is business media trading rich or trading cheap? Uh, probably a little in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I do think I think I think information on a lot of this has become commoditized. There's so much no one can get to at all. And I think I think as we're seeing it with political coverages today, I think we are seeing where, where journalism in general is 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 uh, proving itself once again. I think in business in financial in the financial journalism. It's, a, it's been a little tougher just because the level of competition has been so great. And I think uh, for, the, for the skeptical stock picking type of journalism, uh, I think that financial journalism is going to be hard pressed to do what it used to do just because of limitations. And uh, in that case, probably a little rich. All right, last one. Uh, we both live in parts of the country where the weather's a little bit better than where much of the financial industry grew and um, evolved. You know, places like New York, Boston, Chicago. Uh, do you think finance in the Sun Belt is trading rich or, or trading cheap? Do you think that there's a lot of growth there for um, for the industry, places like Jacksonville, where a lot of um, middle office jobs have been shipped, or do you think that the sort of um, uh, demise of expensive Wall Street centralized large-scale activity is is overblown and that we're going to see places like New York and Chicago continue to be broadly speaking dominant in the industry in this country I don't know I think people look I think uh, people are moving out for for a variety of reasons um, you don't have to be in New York I think sometimes it's an it's advantageous not to be in New York it's to be away from the crowd um, I think it depends what part of the country you're talking about. If you're talking about Southern California, um, I think the, the reason it would be trading rich is because as much as this is a great place to live, it's an expensive place to live. And I think it's hard to recruit people to expensive places. That said, I said the same thing in, the, in San Francisco in the 19, in the 19, you know, the, the, the late 1980s, early 1990s. And it's, you know, it, it, it's beyond what it, you ever could have believed it would be then. But I do think that that has a limiting factor in some parts. I don't know about Jacksonville. I don't know about the prices down in, in Florida or in North Carolina. I suspect there are a lot less. You can get a lot for, more for your money than you can in San Diego. So um, uh, it depends where in the Sun Belt. And unfortunately, some places in the, sun, the sunniest of Sun Belts, 
like Arizona or other places, there are a lot of people probably wouldn't want to be there in the summer, uh, which would make them ideal for businesses to be in, just like some have moved to, to, uh, to, uh, to North Dakota. But the problem is, again, you have to get people to want to live there and have a good lifestyle there. So, um, you know, I'd say it depends where is the, is the, is the answer. Interesting point on um, Arizona. Maricopa County is is one of the fastest, I think it's top five fastest growing counties in the United States. So despite the uh, uh, hotter temperatures they've seen this summer, and like you said, the challenges that that brings with it, they're, they're still booming out there, So which, which is always good to see, I suppose. Um, I think that's it. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you. Really interesting conversation about your path through the industry and, and learning. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. Hey, George, it was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, data sets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.